Well, hello. Hello, Patrick. How are you? How are you doing, Professor? I'm very well, thank you. Okay. Uh, where, where are you? What city are you in? I'm in <clears throat> I'm in London, Ontario, which is in uh, sort of the southern part of uh, the middle of Canada. What's uh, What's the weather like? You know, surprisingly cold today for spring, but um, but spring is coming. It's not too bad. What's uh, What's uh, surprisingly cold for a Canadian? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, for spring, for this time of year, it's normally sunny and starting to get warm. But today, it's uh, I'm in Celsius, but it's about ten degrees Celsius here. Okay. Okay. Cool wow. Yeah. <laughs> it should in, be kind of I'm in the in, teens. I'm in Florida, so. You know, sunny and nice there. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, the humidity doesn't bother me. You know, I'm Haitian, so uh, yeah. You know, uh, when you're from the tropics, you're from the tropics. You know what I mean? So it doesn't mm -hmm. it doesn't bother you as much. So, so welcome, welcome to the show, Dr. Craig Beckett. It's been a while. We should have gotten together sooner rather than later. You know. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. Yeah. So the book we are going to discuss today is Trouillot Remixed, the yes. Michel Wolf Trouillot Reader. What's uh, behind the title? Uh, it's a great question. You know, so that came largely by my co-editor, Yaya Bonilla, who has a piece, an individual piece. It's in the front of the book as a preface um, that she originally wrote after, uh, after Rolf's passing in 2012. And she was reflecting on a conversation she had with him um, many years before that, that if he hadn't been an anthropologist or hadn't been in academia, how did he see himself? What would he have been? And he said somewhat mischievously that he was really a songwriter. Um, and then it felt like a joke at first, and then it felt more serious. And as she learned more about his earlier past when she was writing that piece uh, after his death, she found out that he had actually been involved in all kinds of uh, musical and art projects while in New York uh, after he left Haiti. And so we thought, well, music and song could be a really interesting metaphor to think about the separate pieces that we wanted to weave together. And then the remix part just spoke to us because we didn't want to give a standard reader where we put everything in chronological order or put it in the same kind of order that it appeared as it came out during his life as he was writing it. We wanted to put pieces next to each other, they might have sort of surprises if you read them back to back mm -hmm. or in a way that would allow other people to take his work in the reader and then remix it with their own work as well. So we're thinking of that kind of musical tradition of a mixtape um, in our selection process of mm -hmm. the book. Uh, for the sake of my audience who are not part of the guild, <laughs> yeah. uh, what exactly is a reader? Yeah, it's, um, you know, for academics, it's a great way of combining a bunch of stuff that is maybe hard to get. It could be excerpts from somebody to kind of cover their whole um, body of work over a lifetime, or sometimes they're regional. So, you know, there is a Haiti reader, for example, out there, which is really great, too. It's all fairly short pieces, a starting place for people who don't know much about a place or a person's work, and they want to get a broad overview. Um, and so... We were trying to balance that breadth of overview of his work 
while also giving people some some depth of his work, some long pieces to really dig into. Some, uh, and I think we we got some really important pieces that are hard to find um, in print still in here, so they're more accessible again. And some we we went for some earlier pieces that people might not be as familiar with compared to some of his other more famous work as well. Since we're going to talk about Rio after all, let's talk about uh, narrative production. Uh, mm -hmm. How do you put a reader like this together? Uh, who did what? What was the division of labor? Uh, about you know the process of selecting, for example, which of his works are going to get included and what did you leave out on the cutting room floor? Yeah, great question. So there's three editors, myself, Yaima Bonilla and my Anthony Fernando. And it, it, it was a very long process. I'll start by saying that. And it and the book took many shapes and forms, uh, including a conference at the University of Chicago first, uh, many years before we turned it into a book. So we've been thinking about it for a very long time. The three of us as co-editors had all been students in the anthropology department at the University of Chicago with Rolf. Um, in the early 2000s when he first um, moved to Chicago and was teaching there, but before his illness and before his death. Um, so we knew each other as students of his and, um, and as, as friends and, and graduate student cohort. Um, Yanimar works in the Caribbean as well. So we had two Caribbeanists and both of us had gone to Chicago to work with Rolf specifically. And we knew his work before because we, we worked in the Caribbean. Mayanthi didn't. She works in, in, in France on secularism, Islam, and, and other issues. And so she had a different view of which of his pieces mattered to her. So there's a lot of pieces in there that I think um, we were thinking about providing a kind of method for people beyond Caribbeanists. That was a real key for us is to think about um, trying to make the selections open his work up to as many people as possible. And in putting the reader together, we realized, in fact, just how interdisciplinary his work had been. He's read widely by historians. He's an anthropologist by training. But I actually think that historians engage with his work more than anthropologists sometimes, which is a shame. And then he's been you know, hugely influential in Black studies and Caribbean studies more broadly. And we wanted to make his work as open as possible and have entry points for all of those disciplines. So the selection process took that in mind. And there's a lot on the cutting room floor, as you can imagine, because we would have put everything in if we could have. Um, some of the hardest things was how to put pieces in that represent some of his book length writings, in particular, his book, Silencing the Past, um, which is probably his most widely read and famous book. Uh, you know, I would have wanted to put the whole book in and if we could have, but I also want people to just go read that book. Mm -hmm. um, and so we tried to put things in that represented that book in his work and would send people that way. Um, and in a similar way, we wanted to get some of his older work in that is a little bit more, you know, sort of jargony or, or a little bit more specific to some academic questions. But if you read it and think about, wow, he was thinking about this in 1982 when he was still a graduate student and writing this paper. And then we see him come back to that idea 15 years later in a very different form. So we wanted people to have that kind of surprise and kind of um, counterpoint in his work when they went through the reader. 
you mentioned that uh, the Trouillot estate was involved in the creation of this reader. Uh, can you tell us about that experience? What were some of the expectations and who are some of the members uh, that who were involved? I'm assuming his family. Yeah. Yeah, his, his wife and daughter were the most directly involved. Um, and really, it was mostly uh, they were they were just, I think, happy to have his work get out there some more. Um, we as we knew them as graduate students working with Rolf, he would have us over to his house um, for dinner and things. So we knew his family well and they knew us as students of his work. And I think they trusted us. Um, we, we showed them our selections and they didn't ever um, have any sort of vetoes of things that we were including they helped us with the rights to get uh, the rights to include a lot of things that were harder to kind of find permission for just because maybe the venue they were in didn't exist anymore or was an older piece so it was really supportive I think that there wasn't really any sense of what they felt needed to be in and I think they trusted us to get um, you know to represent his work in a way that he would appreciate and I hope that we've done that we have a co-authored um, introduction that we call keeping with the musical theme an, uh, an overture um, which is a kind of an opening to the piece in his work that we try to situate his work and that we explain you know some of why we put the reader together the way we did in, in there for a longer discussion of it than what we can get into here um, and I think that they were really happy with the the way it came together I hope that they're happy with the way they came together they certainly have have said that they are so uh, let me ask you this. You said something in there that I think it's, it's important. You said he he invited the graduate students to his house. Are you teaching at the university? You're teaching at the university right now, right? It's a it's a, a very different environment now. Like as a professor, you have to be very careful about doing that today, right? Versus how much easier it was back then. What what do you think has been lost? Uh, you know. The, the relationship between the professors and the graduate student, the sort of, you know, uh, mentorship. How, how has that been affected, do you think, today in the current environment where professors have to be very careful about that kind of, you know, outside of, you know, extracurricular type of, of uh, engagement with this graduate student, especially? What do you think? Yeah. Has the environment changed for you? Yeah, it definitely has. And in, in, in different places, it's changing in different ways as well. You know, I think that at the time, at the University of Chicago, at the time that we were there and he was there, there was a lot of that. Um, and I think that that was part of, almost expected as part of the program in a way that as you got closer to your advisors, you would know them in a kind of personal and deep way. Mm -hmm. um, and so there would be, you know, not just at people's houses, but, but events. And Rolf helped uh, create a, a Caribbean studies workshop at the University of Chicago. And after speakers came for that, we would take them up for dinner. And, and I think, as anyone knows, outside of academia too, the conversations over food are, are, are important. That's where a lot of talk can happen mm -hmm. as people are socializing and you build kind of a rapport. It's very different than the classroom. It's very different from, you know, an academic office. So it's more formal when you sit down and talk about things. So I think that when we think about the kind of intellectual and emotional work that goes into academic production and training i think we we maybe risk losing some things for mm -hmm. sure we can't get that um that kind of connection if it if it becomes only formalized around mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. classroom no there's of course lots of ways to do it responsibly still so it doesn't um you know so that people feel comfortable and safe doing those kinds of things being mm -hmm. transparent about it 
um, it, I think that it's it can still be there. But I think we're in a moment, as you're suggesting, where everyone's just a little on edge about those kinds of things. Um, I, I stay in touch with my audience, my non-academic audience, uh, mm -hmm. uh, quite a bit, and and most of whom are outside of you know they are, like I said they're outside of the cabinet. I've asked them repeatedly, and most of them have never heard of Michel Wolf Tuyo. Mm -hmm. And so, which begs the question, who is this reader written for? Uh, what target audience did you three have in mind? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. And that's a, a really interesting to hear that because um, in North American academic circles, his name is sort of growing more and more mm -hmm. um, and he's being cited more and more. So, you know, it's, it's in a university press, Duke University Press published it. It's definitely aimed at uh, academic audiences um he's i do think that rolf was a very good writer and i would i anyone who is is interested and curious about his work that maybe isn't interested in a reader that has um understandably a lot of very academic specific pieces in it i would just suggest silencing the past is an amazing place to start because it's a very narratively driven book mm -hmm. and i'd like to come back to it in relationship to um the the series that the New York Times just published about um, the independence debt um, mm -hmm. with France, but come back to that in a moment. But it's definitely this book is you know um, pretty explicitly for an academic <laughs> audience. But uh, again, we were we were going for a very broad academic audience in a lot of different disciplines on the idea that <clears throat> people could begin to think about things they might be thinking about in their different areas of specialization, but taking a Caribbean theorist, somebody who put the Caribbean at the center of his intellectual thought, <clears throat> excuse me, um, as a way to think about the West or about modernity or about capitalism or globalization, that people are interested in all of those kinds of big topics in a lot of different disciplines. But many people would study globalization or the history of the creation of the Western world and not study Haiti. And I would argue, and I think Rolf does argue, that then they would have a, a pretty flawed picture of the creation of the West if they didn't look at it from the point of view of the Caribbean or the point of view of Haiti. That's just people, a lot of academics who think, well, you can study France and not study the Caribbean, but you can't. Um, you don't get the whole picture. Mm -hmm. And so our, our kind of impetus for the volume is to have that kind of message hit academia even harder, that the importance of a Caribbean point of view and a Haitian point of view on concepts on big theory that isn't necessarily topically about the Caribbean, but might be about a bunch of other things. So what are some of the thematic through lines that connect all of Thuriot's works that you've included in this reader? Can mm -hmm. you list one or two for the audience? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've tried to, we've divided the reader up kind of in, in one way, but beyond that, the things that connect the, the separate sections and the pieces, he had some really enduring commitments. One was really to think about a kind of critical understanding of how the Western world came to be for a deep history and always doing that in a way that lo looked at the Caribbean as the center rather than the margins of that story. Mm -hmm. That's been a really consistent through line. Now that's a pretty big kind of generalization, but he did that in a couple of very specific ways. One of them, he was always really interested in the peasantry in the Caribbean and thinking mm -hmm. of them as a group historically forms after or alongside the slave plantation system. And the Caribbean peasantry then doesn't fit the story we get if you look at 
the peasantry only from Europe, where they see, they're seen as sort of a pre-capitalist form of labor in the Caribbean. They're very different. Um, they emerge in a different historical context. And so he was really interested in thinking about that. And I think a commitment there, though, beyond, again, a topic, and it's a commitment that goes across his other work, too, is that he wanted to understand peasants, Caribbean peasants, as people who had theories about their own lives, theories about capitalism. They understood globalization from a very specific point of view. And if we listened to them, we might learn something instead of sort of treating them just as data points for our own analysis. Mm -hmm. uh, what were some of the, uh, uh, we'll get deeper into this, some of the burning questions that occupied Cuyo, the scholar and the musician? We touched on it before, but can you, can you expand on it a little bit more? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that he was really interested in how people make the worlds that they make and how they make meaning out of those worlds through their various projects. And he looked at that in a lot of different ways, whether it's um, people making whole new societies in the Caribbean um, alongside and, and after the plantation, or whether it's the way that we make our concepts. Certainly he had a, a real abiding concern for how we make the stories we tell each other about history um, and historical narrative was always a real key kind of concern for him. How are histories made and remade, both at the level of making a narrative, writing it down, um, finding an archive, those kinds of things, and also at the level of activity. How is something historical happen in the world? And the frame of reference there for him was absolutely the Haitian Revolution and the, the emergence of Caribbean societies through all the kinds of activity and agency that, that Caribbean peoples have used to create their own languages and religions and social structures. And so that for him, I think, was the really central questions that animated him no matter what he was looking at, if it was a political argument about the state or whether it was an argument about uh, economic argument about globalization, that was really sort of the anchor points for him, I think. Okay, so here's Tuyo, and it ties in with what you just said. Uh, quote, the place we most often call the West is best called the North Atlantic, not only for the sake of geographical precision, but also because such usage frees us to emphasize that, quote, the West, unquote, is always a fiction, an exercise in global legitimation. What is he getting at there? Is that what he meant by geography of imagination, a uh, Baroque academic term I want you to break down for my audience? Mm -hmm. Also, who is carrying the water for that, quote, exercise in global legitimation? Yeah. Yeah, it's a great quote and a good question. And yeah, the geography of imagination um, and geography of management are, are, are cumbersome terms, to say the least. There's a couple of things to kind of unpack there. The, the first is... Um, very briefly, there's a long argument line behind his thinking there, the North Atlantic rather than the West is it's just a more specific uh, sort of coordinate for the sort of uh, spheres of power and influence that he's targeting there. Um, as Europe became Europe by, and, and Christian Europe became Europe and called itself the West by kicking all of its others out of Europe in, in the Northern Europe. Um, and then by the so-called discovery of the new world um, where, where the West really invents itself. So the North Atlantic, he's really trying to, to really combine Europe and the US there to think more broadly about the West. And, and I think his target in the more contemporary period is American power. So that the, the, the language about the West is used most um, concretely now 
to legitimize the sort of naturalize American uh, imperialism all around the world and, and the legacies of European imperialism as well. Um, so we really wanted to expose how lying behind the narrative, the discovery story, the way that people in America encounter the story about Columbus, we can come back to that in a moment, mm-hmm. or just the way that they, they get told American history or European history, right? It's always written as a moral success story where the West is always progressing towards a more perfect vision of democracy or freedom or whatever you're thinking about. Mm-hmm. And that's a story. It's a compelling story for many, but it's a story, first of all, that rests on a history of genocide, slavery, and racism and colonialism. And secondly, it's a story that just leaves out a lot of the most important parts <laughs> of the story. It's a triumphant story that winner tells about how they came to be. And so there's no way to see that story as true from the Caribbean point of view. But there's no way to, to understand Caribbean history without understanding that story and how that story has been told and retold because you can't really understand Caribbean history without talking about Europe and Africa and Asia and different places that people and um, and even plants and animals have come from in the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. And vice versa, right? You, you, yes. Yeah. Uh, well, you, so that's the problem. The West thinks it can it can talk about itself only in its own terms and, and, and that you could talk about, say, <clears throat> the emergence of the idea of, of freedom or a liberal democratic state. People tell that story all the time in America, in the classroom, in books, on TV, and they never mention the Haitian Revolution. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> They'll mention the American Revolution or the French Revolution, but not the Haitian Revolution. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, so you touched on the other term, geography of management. Um, uh, and mm-hmm. at some point, I think he said that the the uh, the Caribbean were more advanced or developed than than Europe, uh, mm-hmm. if if I remember reading that correctly. And and part of that is because of you know the the labor extraction sort of methods that were being used for hundreds of years, kind of pushed a lot of advancement, right? And in 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 the islands in the Caribbean. Uh, and Europe was kind of, you know, behind, so to speak, right? Like a lot of the advancement were going on in the Caribbean. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and um, you know, Caribbean anthropologists, anthropologists who study the Caribbean or work in the Caribbean, <clears throat> like to think of it as the Caribbean was modern before Europe was modern. That, that if we think of the history of capitalism as the West tells it, it's largely through you know, the spirit of invention and the Industrial Revolution in Europe. But all of that begins in, in, the, in the kind of technical expertise that's brought to the slave plantation in the Caribbean, where it's not free labor, so it doesn't look like it's capitalist yet, but it's very proto-capitalist because a sugar plantation especially is dependent on a massive organization of a huge workforce controlling it in relationship to the time that you make the various parts of it, getting the cane to the mill in time to, to mm-hmm. grind it so you can make the sugar. All of that is very much like the industrial factory before the factory really begins to exist as such in Europe. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the management techniques of, of controlling workforces are really worked out by um, slave plantation managers and owners. And then a lot of the capital forms of capitalist investment mortgages and loans and the kinds of of financial arrangements that went into the slave plantation system in the Caribbean become the basis as well for that kind of investment 
in a factory or manufacturing system. So in the 1600s, 1700s, the Caribbean is really at the forefront um, technologically, um, economically of, of the world. Of course, all of that is, is through an ex incredibly extractive system that brings all of the wealth from the Caribbean to build monuments and estates and, and, and um, fund the nobility back in Europe. Do you think there's some benefits to, to this sort of close dis disciplinary approach to history and anthropology and vice versa? Did, did, does each field kind of complement each other if you bring, bring in both skill set to, uh, to the table? You know, for me, the answer is 100% yes, and I think it was for Rolf as well. I don't know that all of anthropology agrees. <laughs> There's some tensions, of course, between different disciplines. But, um, you know, for me, there isn't really a way to think about the, the world anthropologically, about questions about culture and meaning and how people um, value the things they value and why they do the things they do and how they think about it. I don't think you can <clears throat> explore those questions except through history. <clears throat> But I also don't think that you can really explore historical narratives without thinking a little anthropologically about the conditions of their production, which is what Rolf was really interested in. How do hist historical narratives get made? Um, when you think about the level of, of, of writing or the narrative frames, the genres that people write, you know, people write about Haiti often in a kind of tragic vein. There was this great moment of the revolution, and then it went downhill. And I think that people use that narrative frame to construct a kind of Haitian exceptionalism, mm -hmm. rather than it, it doesn't necessarily help us understand what happened in Haiti over the past couple hundred years, mm -hmm. or why it might in fact block us from understanding. So we could look a little critically at the, the <laughs> way that narrative gets produced if we think like an anthropologist, and then we need to think historically, or else I think we just um, mistake a lot of the present world for a given if we don't look at the, the history um, through which it's come to us. So, so what is thinking like an anthropologist? Are you, are you a passive observer of the culture you're looking at? Or what are the, the, the sort of boundaries uh, I get that, that you have to bring as far as your training, you know, your, the past, past training, I know he had a lot of problem with that, and we'll get into mm -hmm. one of the essays where he covers that. But what is, how, how, should, how should an anthropologist look at a culture? And what is the distance? What is the comfortable, quote unquote, safe distance from which to observe and record and understand another culture? Mm -hmm. It's a great question. And, and <laughs> the joke in a lot of anthropology introductory classes at university is that if you ask a hundred anthropologists to define what they do, you'll get 101 answers because there's a, a pretty sort of bitter debate in the field about what we do and what we have done in the past. But let me touch on what I think matters to me about anthropology and, and, and matters to Rolf as well. I think that you can't really be um, a, a too distant and removed. Obviously, there's some sense of, of observation that goes into anthropology. You go to, to see how people live and how they think and how they um, interact in the world. But it's more of an act of translation than it is of observation that trying to understand uh, a culture or a cultural practice uh, on the terms through which the people who engage in it think about it as well. And then maybe bring that back to a different audience and, and put it back into the terms of 
say, your own culture or, or the culture of the, the people who might be reading what you're writing so they can understand it. So we make what might seem strange or, or different to us becomes more familiar through that act of anthropological thinking about it. We can say, well, people do very different things all around the world, but in some ways they're all very similar things and we can compare them. Right? And mm -hmm. in the process of doing that, it also takes what we think of as the, the taken for granted, the given, the obvious, the common sense about the world. Mm -hmm. And hopefully it destabilizes a bit so that, you know, for, for example, the more you learn about Haiti, the more you have to question the United States history or Europe's history, right? You can't mm -hmm. start to learn about Haiti and not, or I, I suppose you can, but you wouldn't be doing a very good analysis if you didn't start to ask questions about white supremacy and racism and neocolonialism and the way that debt is used to structure, mm -hmm. um, you know, po political arrangements around the world. Um, so it should force you into a to an uncomfortable set of questions about your own uh, culture or society as well. I think that that's really important about that. You know, uh, Rolf was Haitian, and I think at the time that he studied anthropology, as a student um, training anthropology in the late 70s, early 80s, the, the expectation for people, for anthropologists who were not white, and let's be honest, anthropology remains a pretty white discipline. We have a lot of work to do to shift that and decolonize the discipline. The expectation would have been that a Haitian anthropologist would study Haiti. Um, that, that if you weren't white, you would study your own society, but if you were white, you could study anybody. That's the, and that's a problematic um, legacy of the history of anthropology, which is born out of forms of colonial knowledge making. Mm -hmm. Rolf really, throughout his whole career, argued against that. He did write a lot about Haiti, but as a, his, the core anthropological work, he worked in Dominica. And he often suggested to his non-white students that they should work not in the place that they're from, but somewhere else as a way of coming back to working if they want to later on where mm -hmm. they're from. But it was partly kind of a career move to, to push against that idea that, well, Haitians can study themselves, but, but a white anthropologist can study anybody. He wanted to push against that. Mm -hmm. But I also think he thought it would be really important in pushing himself even that he often said he learned a lot about the Haitian peasantry by being in Dominica. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that's important because you, you get out of that exceptionalism or that frame of what you think you know, mm -hmm. and it just forces you to make comparisons and see interesting connections. So there's a lot, just a value of, of how we make better knowledge through that kind of move. Mm -hmm. But I think he pushed really hard against a lingering, I, I want to call it sort of like a colonial gaze or a colonial expectation built into anthropology, mm -hmm. which as a form of knowledge kind of emerged in Europe as a way of Europe, Europeans trying to understand the other people they were meeting through colonial conquest, invasion, and genocide, but to, not, but to erase that history, right? So anthropology as a discipline has played a weird, curious role in doing the work of colonialism um, and also covering up the work of colonialism. Mm -hmm. Is, isn't translation more fraught with all sorts of it, with pitfalls in terms of during the translation at some point you're going to represent the colonial i guess he said you can't get out of the colonial perspective right like totally you just have yeah, to kind I, of uh 
uh, what did what did the term uh, your uh, the three of you use the term uh, what was it uh, like he didn't like the word decolonize mindset or he didn't use it and you preferred uh, what was the term you use uh, uh, unsettling unsettling yeah that can you tell us the difference between the t- two and why he chose he was mm-hmm. careful about not using decolonize uh, to decolonize uh, anthropology I guess but more. Yeah. Yeah. Why did you all choose that word for him? Or I I guess to describe what he kind of really meant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's a big push in anthropology to decolonize the discipline. And and that is hugely important. And I don't think he would argue against that work. But the the reason he didn't use that language and that term, and so we didn't want to in the reader either, is that he was really clear that, that we shouldn't mistake what we're doing here. You can't decolonize anthropology without decolonizing the world in which anthropology operates. We could, as academics, pretend that we can and sit in our university and say, look, we've decolonized anthropology. We understand the colonial history and this and that. And that's all important work. But it, if it remains at the level of just the discipline of anthropology, it is a failed project because for him, and this goes back to those awkward terms of geography of imagination and the geography of management, to give a different gloss for those, it's basically sort of the structures of, of power or the geography of a management and the way we think about the world is the geography of imagination. The way that we think about the world is shaped by the larger conditions that, that we operate in. And, and in that case, it's still the legacies of Western imperialism and Western neocolonialism that shape the world in, in lots of ways still. So we can't fully decolonize a a narrow part of that without trying to do that broader work of, of looking at where power operates and where power comes from. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that for, so, so we chose unsettling in the book as a different way of talking about it because we think that, that what he was trying to do in that work then was to navigate an ambiguous place to say, well, we have to do the work that we might call decolonizing anthropology, but it's not going to do that. But we can't just give up just because we can't succeed. So where do you situate yourself? How do you, how do you actually be an anthropologist and why? It's uh, for us, as we rewrote, as we wrote the introduction, we were thinking, you know, it's interesting that none of us asked him when he was alive, but why he chose anthropology rather than history or political science, which might've been more obvious disciplines for him to choose given his interests and his family. Um, he's a lot of, of historians in his family. Mm-hmm. And he chose anthropology for a reason. And so we tried to think through why that was. And, and for him, it was because despite its flaws, at the core, there was something about anthropology that was important to him, which was that it really was an attempt to think about how the way we live in the world is, is socially transmitted, not biologically transmitted. Mm-hmm. At the core of anthropology is a commitment to the idea of culture. And at the core of the idea of culture, however much we use that word in, in so many different ways all the time now, it's kind of lost a lot of specific meaning. But at the core of the idea of culture is an anti-racism. It's an argument against what had been and maybe still is in some ways the dominant understanding of difference, which since the West became the West has been the ideology of race and racial inequality. Mm-hmm. So for, for Trio, anthropology was flawed, but a really important sort of political battleground or, or place to situate that kind of anti-racist work 
in rethinking, critically rethinking the West and the mm-hmm. project that, that gave birth to the West. Uh, his essay, Anthropology and the Savage Slot, The Poetics mm-hmm. and Politics of, of Otherness, uh, you, you, you said that it's, uh, it's the most read but, and the most misread essay. <laughs> Uh, what, uh, uh, by whom and how? how? How has it been misread? <clears throat> so first of all, the most read is mostly by anthropologists. It is definitely right, right. that speaks to them only and, and pretty obscurely. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, misread in, in, in a way that academics often do, which is that they end up just sort of citing the title and just kind of gesture to the savage slot without really following through what it, what it is the deeper stakes in the piece for him. The piece is partly an argument against some things that were happening in anthropology at the time that he wrote it in the late 80s and 90s, where anthropology was trying to to think a lot more critically about how it wrote about other places. And um, Rolf's argument was, well, we can't really, again, just look at anthropology and solve the problem within the discipline and say, I've put myself in there. I use the first person pronoun. I talk about my own positionality. So now I'm not doing colonialism anymore. Now I'm doing in anthropology that's really honest. That that shift had actually in anthropology in some ways ended up meaning that anthropologists started talking more about themselves than they were talking about the people with whom they worked. It became sort of a kind of academic navel gazing. So that was his main target in the piece, but it goes so much further beyond that. And this is the, I think the misread or maybe underread is maybe a better kind of metaphor that the stakes are just really huge in that piece. And, and I think if you read other parts of the reader, you can see him continuing to think through that theme. There's an argument in this piece about anthropology historically emerging as a, a, a really important part of that geography of imagination the West was building of itself through its encounter with the West's so-called others mm-hmm. um, in the Caribbean, specifically for, for Rolf, but all the places where European empires went. And I think um, maybe a way to, to kind of make that make more sense is to think through some stories, to think about how, from Europe's point of view, what the dis- so-called discovery, I'll use Europe's language, but imagine quotes around these words, because I don't, I don't intend them to be true or accurate, but Europe's so-called discovery um, of the new world, uh, which gets told triumphantly, right? Um, mm-hmm. But it's a funny story because, I mean, it really is just Columbus scuttles one of his ships on the north of the island that he names Hispaniola and then leaves a settlement and, and then comes back. Um, and I think that what Rolf is thinking about in that history is to think about what all these places meant for the Europeans who were discovering them, which um, was probably a huge blow to European thought at the time as they encountered places they had never heard of in any of their sort of literature that they were drawing on and people that they had never um, knew existed before. Of course, it's less problematic for the indigenous populations who knew they existed and were here and didn't need Europe to come and discover them. But from the European point of view in say the 1500s, it was a hugely problematic thing because the main bodies of literature through which European intellectuals would have understood the world were the Christian Bible, and the sort of scholastic tradition from the Renaissance of the reconstructed works from ancient Greek and Rome, the sort of philosophical texts that Europe was turning to, Aristotle primarily, but not exclusively those kinds of of texts. 
none of that literature spoke of a part of the world or people that didn't that hadn't been known to Europe before. And in fact, the Bible said, well, you, you know, God has told you about the whole world, you know, everybody in it, and everybody's heard the word of God and either accepted it or not. And so we get this huge problem for Christian Europe of what to do and how to think about this whole, um, to really think about a, a sort of, for them, unsettling kind of difference. All the, and they had to reconcile it with their own cultural viewpoint, which is to say, well, we have to say we can enslave them, we can um, convert them to Christianity, or we can kill them. And these become the main things that Europe does in the new world and, and justifies it through all kinds of, um, you know, appeals to that literature. Mm-hmm. And I think that anthropology emerges a couple centuries later from the travel writing of people who were at the front end of that genocidal conquest of the so-called new world and trying to think about difference and trying to understand human difference in a way that became very unsettling for Europe. And so they had to find a, a discourse to make it make sense to them. And mm-hmm. so culture, at first it's race, and then eventually anthropology comes along and it's culture and cultural differences as a way to explain all of those others in the world. And the problem um, that Rolf is getting at in that piece is that, that the whole idea of culture though is still situated from a, a Western point of view that assumes a kind of white Christian um, individual as the unmarked or category that doesn't need to be explained and everything else is a form of difference in relationship to to europe to the west mm-hmm. and so i think that that's the deeper cut in his piece to think about how anthropology however critical it's been or able to help us rethink or unsettle the west is fundamentally based on a western conceit mm-hmm. which is that difference has to be explained in relationship to the west mm-hmm. rather mm-hmm. than understanding the West as the, as the different or the, or the culture that needs to be explained. So, so uh, as far as the, 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 the term, the unsettling project on the, on the scale of one to 10, 10 being where, you know, since, since you said you can never actually ever get rid of, you know, uh, the, 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 the Western uh, perspective, if you will, where where do you think your generation of anthropologists are now, and and what would Puyo say if he were still alive today about that unsettling project where you are? Have, are you have you made progress, or are you regressing, or <laughs> where are you? <laughs> like any battle, it's long, you know, and and there's there's um, steps forward and step backward. But I think that from you know where he wrote some of those pieces, let's say in the '90s and. And some of that argument against anthropology is in his last book, Global Transformations, which came out in 2003. Mm-hmm. And we have a few pieces from that in the reader. Um, so 20 years, though, almost has gone by. And I do think that anthropology has made a lot of ground in those 20 years. Maybe not so clearly yet in the actual institutions of the discipline, because those are, are slow to change. Um, you know, you got uh, you know, myself included, tenured professors making up the the discipline. and But I think it, there's been a huge shift it, generationally in students who are coming into anthropology and what they expect from the discipline. And what I see happening is, uh, I, is really exciting. I see a kind of divide um, where a lot of the <clears throat> older faculty perhaps are holding on to the way things were 
and the, the way things are, are the comfortable things for them, the way they've always done anthropology, they have a real understandable commitment to that, right? You want you want to teach a discipline the way you were taught it and reproduce it because it matters to you. And then you have, and I would include myself in this, I hope, a kind of middle or younger generation in, in academia who's listening to students coming in or people who aren't even interested in academia but want something from anthropology and saying, that's not good enough, do better. And so then we try to do better and we unsettle, we decolonize, we work a little bit and then they still say, that's not good enough, do better. And I think that there were in a moment of real challenge where people are, are refusing to accept gradual progress or gradual decolonization. They want real meaningful substantive change and not just in anthropology, but in, the, in higher education throughout um, the US and Canada especially. And you can see that, how that's pushing a kind of reaction, especially in, in America right now, where people talk about, in certain states, for example, um, legislation to prevent the, the teaching of so-called critical race theory, <clears throat> so-called in the sense of <clears throat> the legislation has a very different view of it than, than scholars might. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so uh, higher education is becoming a battleground for a kind of conservative impulse to keep the disciplines the way they were and to keep knowledge the way it was and then a lot of a kind of a, a political sea change where people are really calling for substantive meaningful change in academia in education and, and making it matter beyond the academy i think that mm -hmm. that's also a huge change that's happened in the past 20 years that our work should really matter um to people beyond just fellow professors so you think uh, uh, you said the graduate students are sort of the ones coming in with those sort, sorts of expectations of, of, of the departments, like the anthropology departments. What about uh, your generation of scholars who are tenured now and eventually are going to replace and be in the position of, of power within those institutions? Are your expectations, are you going to, do you see a trend with your generation of anthropologists who are who kind of think the same way uh, you do, co-signing on sort of an unsettling of approach to, to, to the field? Or uh, do you have hope that that's, that's in the works as, as the older generation retire who are more resistant? Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's happening and I think it's inevitable. It's just a matter of how slow or how long it takes. Uh, I think that there's no way for anthropology to continue without this kind of change or mm -hmm. else if it didn't change this way, it would become, I think, the worst version of itself. I think if it, 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 it's got sort of two futures, I think one is the most likely one. It's going to change and it's going to be an exciting series of changes mm -hmm. um, and a kind of maybe incomplete where we're kind of constantly trying to revolutionize it and change it more and more or less likely but still possible future where anthropology just closes ranks <clears throat> and becomes sort of that old colonial project of, um, you know, a kind of conservative white branch of anthropology that wants to control the discourse about um, different peoples all around the world. And I think that, that if it, the more it, it, the more anthropology holds tightly onto the past, the more it has to decide whether it's really doing anti-racist work in its concepts and it's, or whether it's actually defending the ideology of racism and white supremacy. And I, mm -hmm. I hope it chooses one of those rather than the other. Mm -hmm. 
Puyo cites Noam Chomsky and the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. And how does it tie in with the Haitian proverb that Shoje prete pa cuit pois, a borrowed pot can't cook peas? <laughs> you know, it's a good question, though, because I, I, I would say, though, that I, you know, I, I work in Haiti, too, and, um, and but I've always found trios uses of some some Creole idioms like that to be a little unscrutable. Like they're never quite <laughs> the way that that people that I work with in, in Haiti use similar sayings all the time, but but in a way that makes more sense to me. Yeah. Um, so there's a bit of a mystery there for me, but the, but the superior warfare hypothesis is um, overly technical terminology, but really interesting. And in its very briefest way, it's an argument for thinking about how the language that we have, that we speak in and we think through, shapes our understanding of the world. Mm-hmm. And I think that anybody who speaks more than one language is probably doesn't need to be told that that, that you, when you're in a conversation or you have to switch to um, from Creole or French to English in different contexts, you, you think a little differently and you might mm-hmm. explain things a little differently. And, mm-hmm. and so, for example, it gets a little weird to start speaking really idiomatically. I mean, English has its own idioms too, but um, mm-hmm. to start talking about the borrowed pot and things like that, people are like scratching their head. But in a certain context, um, that would be exactly how, um, you know, a, a political conversation or a theoretical conversation might move through idiomatic speech like that, mm-hmm. um, you know, at a table in Haiti where spe- people are speaking Creole and thinking really big, important analyses about what's happening. But in a different way than, and then if they pivot into French, they'll, they'll explain it differently. At least I always find the people that I, that I work in, in Port-au-Prince mostly, and um, people are either switching from Creole to English or Creole to French, and, and the way they talk switches a little bit. So that Sapir-Whorf hypothesis was just from linguistic anthropology to think about how language at the level, not just of words, but the, the grammatical relationship of the words, how we think about a verb in relationship to a subject doing the action and the way we think about um, spatial orientation through language, how you describe something over there in one language versus another, all of those become framing devices for communication, but also they frame our, our, our philosophy, our theorizing. Mm-hmm. And, and I I like th- about, Go ahead. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say, what I like about that is you, if you bring that back then to this project of, unsettling the West and the Western narrative of progress. There's something very, very English about Western imperialism, even though it, a lot of other European language, languages were involved in, in forms of colonialism. Um, what I mean by that is that, you know, English is a very kind of a language of, of things that people do things to, you know, it's a very um, object oriented and, and it, it's a language that I think is, is almost perfectly suited for certain forms of economic activity like capitalism. It's a language that makes it surprisingly easy to think about the world as a bunch of objects you can manipulate for your own projects, you know, but Mm -hmm. not every language engages the world that way. A lot of Mm -hmm. indigenous languages all around the world don't, and they have a lot more of a relational understanding of things. So thinking about, really it's an argument about thinking about the concepts through which we understand the world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
And you know, yeah. Gio's first book was written in Creole. Yeah. And, uh, um, boule, right? Yeah. yeah. And we didn't, we don't have a piece from it in the reader, yeah. which is a conscious decision because there is a new English translation of it coming out or, or out now. But we have a piece where he speaks um, on, um, on Radio Haiti about the book. So there's an interview where he talks about why he wrote it, why he wrote it in Creole, how he wrote it. And that is what we decide to include as mm -hmm. a way of getting at that for him. But it's always been, I think, a puzzle for a lot of people that approach his work um, and maybe know his, his English work um, mm -hmm. and his academic work. It's not an academic book either. It's a book when he decided to try to, he talks about uh, sort of rewriting it. He wrote it a different book in French and then about um, about Haiti. And then he wrote um, Haiti State Against Nation. And they're all incredibly different books. There's, there's not a translation at all. Mm -hmm. um, and T.D. Febouillet is a very different book that is, I think, I know there is a great English translation, but for us, it felt hard to to fully articulate what so, he was doing in, in that book uh, uh -huh. in a way that we could excerpt into the reader. Um, so it form. is, so, so Titifei is translated in English now? Yes, I think it's only a part. I think it's coming out in, in a couple of parts, but there is a, an oh, English wow. translation out now um, or should be coming out this year if it's not out yet. It, uh, is Laura Wagner doing it? She, no, she wasn't doing the translation. She did okay. the translation of the radio piece and uh -huh, uh -huh. um, I'm blanking on, on who um it, it did the translation is bringing it out uh, and he commented a lot about this how it's frustrating that a lot of american uh academics would go to haiti and they would understand they have to learn creole but they wouldn't mm -hmm. necessarily learn french mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. engage with haitian intellectuals who write primarily in french mm -hmm. um and so they wouldn't they wouldn't be citing any of that literature mm -hmm. and, and so I think, you know, to really work in, in a place like Haiti, you need to be working in, in several languages. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's lots of times I wish I knew Spanish, too. <laughs> but right. I um, uh, or even sometimes German. I mean, it's um, there's a lot of, of stuff that gets closed off if you don't if you're not open to be able to move through languages. But then the translation, just if you if you really treat it openly, it it should raise more questions or unsettle you again rather than seeming like a, a simple one-to-one -one correspondence oh. how, how how big of an influence was uh sydney mintz on Twitter? Uh, i think it was huge and i think that um i think that it's largely mintz's work that convinced rolf that anthropology was worth doing rather than a different discipline um and so, you know, for those who aren't anthropologists or who haven't come across Sidney Mintz's work, he has a really, I think, pretty readable um, general audience book called uh, Sweetness and Power about the history of sugar. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. Mintz was always, he was of a generation that, that came into anthropology after World War II, um, when in America, the GI Bill opened up higher ed to a lot of people who might not, not otherwise have come into it. Mm -hmm. And he was always very different from a lot of the other anthropologists in his era in his mm -hmm. to thinking about the Caribbean as historically shaped um, by colonialism and thinking very comparatively across the Caribbean. Mintz worked in um, the French-speaking, Spanish-speaking, and English-speaking Caribbean. <clears throat> and he always lamented that he never learned Dutch and couldn't work in the Dutch-speaking Caribbean. But, mm -hmm. uh, but he drew on all that kind of work. And and he was very um, a kind of non-dogmatic Marxist anthropologist as well. He wasn't 
politically committed to some version of communism or state socialism, but he's a Marxist in terms of thinking about how people transform the world through their labor and make things that they value is an important way to understand a lot of what people do, especially in, in societies where very specific forms of labor shaped those societies, like the Caribbean, mm -hmm. from slavery mm -hmm. to the peasantry to other kinds of labor. So Mintz was really hugely influential on Rolf and brought him into the discipline. And, um, and I think that in his earlier work, especially his stuff on peasants, you can see a lot of, of the legacy of Mintz's thinking. It's sort of the most shaped by Mintz. He was also really influenced by Emmanuel Wallerstein's world systems theory, these sort of big approaches to thinking about how we'd have to understand the present through a history that's quite global in its reach, its scale and scope. And I think, again, coming from the point of view of the Caribbean, that makes a lot of sense. You can't understand the Caribbean as a bunch of isolated um, groups that at the time that Mintz was writing, or began writing in the 50s, 1950s, a lot of anthropologists were still looking for societies that they thought were sort of undiscovered or untouched, you know, like small scale indigenous societies in the Amazon or in the Pacific. That was sort of the model of anthropology to say, hey, if we find a society that's small enough, we'll get a great sort of objective view of how culture works in a society that's not sort of tainted by connections to other places and people. That's mm -hmm. all a huge conceit because no anthropologist is ending up in a in an indigenous society that's untouched um mm -hmm. the anthropologist is going to be there because there's relationships that have been established to those places right and, mm -hmm. and small-scale indigenous societies in the amazon had been working in on rubber plantations for a century before anthropologists arrived so that world systems view that mints and others were really pushing that ralph i think really appreciated meant you could never start from that same place. You had to start from a kind of, as he called it, an inescapable history lying behind the present that you were looking at. Mm -hmm. What was, was the field of anthropology created because uh, some in the West realized that uh, colonialism was destroying a lot of cultures around the world, that they had to find some way to preserve those cultures? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that, in, and especially in America, the, the American tradition of anthropology, which is associated with a, a European who, who came here and helped found the first schools, Franz Boas, very much had that concern. I think it was a little different in Europe, but in American anthropology, it's happening in sort of in real time where American anthropologists are starting to look around. You know, let's say 1900, America is still kind of becoming itself and there's still frontiers and there's still battles, um, uh, genocidal wars with the indigenous population in the continental landmass that becomes the United States. So anthropologists, I think, had to confront it. They saw it as sort of a, a salvage project to kind of create an archive wow. before all these important forms of cultural difference maybe disappeared. And I think that... Um, it's an interesting point when we're kind of going back to the, the generational differences in the discipline. I think there's an older kind of idea or, or an older generation that still holds on to the idea that that's anthropology's role to kind of protect and catalog almost like a museum approach to culture mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. versus uh, I think a more contemporary approach, which is to say maybe what anthropologists should do is help get all of those cultural resources that are in museums 
back to the communities they were stolen from so they can begin to rebuild their own cultures, um, reteach their languages, or revive uh, whatever parts of their cultural traditions they hope to revive. So a very different role where anthropology might have a role, have a purpose to play, not so much in documenting um, cultural difference, but in helping to reverse the direction of that um, of that cataloging, which was kind of extractive, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, so the Tuyo says, and uh, here's the quote: "There is no stateness to states, no essence to culture, not even a fixed." content to specific cultures, let alone a fixed content to the West. We gain greater knowledge of the nation, the state, the tribe, modernity, or globalization itself when we approach them as sets of relations and processes rather than ahistorical essences. So, unquote. So does he consider essentialism ahistorical, absence, a set of relations? Like, Like, for example, can you talk about I am Haitian and then you don't include, you, you know, being Haitian as it relates to the West, as it relates to the Caribbean? Like, because I find that in, in, in public conversation, there's, there's this tendency towards a certain purity. Uh, I'm wondering if, if, if he would have, if, if he considers that kind of like you're stepping out of history when you, you think you can find the essence of being Haitian, for example, without talking about all the other relationship and complex relationships, that word Haitian has to do with other cultures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's absolutely, absolutely right for how he's thinking of it in that quote, that there really isn't, there's never an essence to, to any of those things. And that's partly an argument about those those concepts and how we think about them, that those names, we think that they are the answer, but those names are actually just kind of questions. Well, if there is a Haitian culture, what is it? What's its history? How, is it, mm-hmm. how does it operate? The flip side, though, is that, of course, for people in their day-to-day lives, talking about, uh, especially about culture in, in a way that is, is really valuable to them is often a, a way that, that invokes a kind of essence to it because mm-hmm. it's trying to get at what people value about it. So there's a difference between how people use the word culture in their day-to-day lives versus his argument about how anthropologists should use it. That, and I think that, um, well, I'll give you an example kind of from my own work. When I was starting out as a graduate student, I wanted to work in, in Port-au-Prince, um, which is where I do most of my, my research. Um, but at that time, I was filling out grant applications, trying to get funding from American granting institutions. Mm-hmm, and I, just, mm-hmm. I didn't do too well. And you get feedback when you get rejected from these things. And a couple of the comments from some people, I don't know who they were, because it's a kind of blind review system. Mm-hmm. Included this. I don't remember the exact quote, but it was. It struck me enough that I remember it 25, 20 years later, um, saying that my project would work better if I worked in the countryside in Haiti, where real Haitians live, not wow. mm-hmm. now, anybody who's been to Port-au-Prince knows it's it's full of Haitian culture and, and real Haitians just because it's not the countryside. But there was this idea, this very essentialist idea of where you would go to find Haitian culture. Mm-hmm. Um, now you would find amazingly interesting things working, but, but there isn't just one countryside in Haiti, right? Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. It's going to really depend where you go, north, right. south, east, west. Is it close to the border? Is it going to be influenced by people moving across the border? Like, so I think that even even beyond the sort of relations between Haiti and elsewhere, even within Haiti, 
there's a bunch of different you know ways of of being and ways of living Haitian in a sense right and, mm-hmm. and then think about generationally or the way that that um, class or or color discourse um, stratifies society how people think about um, the people who are from outside the city in Port-au-Prince versus the people who have a deep connection to being from Port-au-Prince and mm-hmm. the way people talk about, you know, who really belongs where. And so I think that, um, and you bring that back to America too, right? I mean, a lot of, of politics right now is people trying to, to, to settle things by, by getting essences back behind, um, you know, what it really means to be American, what it really means to be whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So I think, we're, but I think we're in a moment where people are increasingly realizing that relationality. It's uncomfortable for some people, mm-hmm. um, but for others, I think it's very freeing to, to say, um, to, to to sort of discover that the deep historical connectedness that some of us might share. So it's about roots. It's about mm-hmm. routes, not roots. That's right. right? Roots and routes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you touched briefly on. Uh, on the current New York Times piece, uh, mm-hmm. what, what, what were you what were you going to say about that in connection to to our discussion today? Yeah, it's so. First of all, on on Twitter, where there's a lot of historians of Haiti that I follow, it's it's having everyone's having a moment. So the New York Times is finally doing this piece on Haiti that's very different from their reporting on Haiti historically, mm-hmm. um, which has not always been great. And this series, I think there's a lot of excitement. I'm certainly excited by it. I, I, there hasn't been this broad and this widely decimated discussion of some key aspects of Haitian history, in particular, the indemnity to France from 1825 and, and the way that that, sometimes it's called the odious debt or the independence debt, mm-hmm. um, the way that that has, has shaped a lot of what's happened in Haiti. Sense the that. ransom, the ransom. Exactly before, right. Yeah. I mean, it's not a. It was a. It was an extorted claim, of to pay reparations to the former plantation owners. Yeah. And it was part of you know a settlement for internal French politics. There's so much to that story that, of course, anyone who works in Haiti should be familiar with it. If they're not, then I don't know what they're doing. And of course, every Haitian knows that story, right? And, so part of the interesting conversation and how this comes back to some of Ralph's work is this. I think that there's a debate about what does it mean that New York Times is doing this story now? Is it good? A lot of my historian friends are frustrated because the story is being advertised by the Times as if it's sort of breaking news. And they're mm-hmm. kind of pitching themselves as having discovered this or yeah. they're the ones who finally did the, the archival work to show this. And, and of course, there's a lot of historians many of them Haitian historians who have been writing about this for generations. Yes. Um, and so, so first of all, it's not an untold story and that's frustrating enough. Um, and that's kind of how journalism works. And I do get that the times sees itself a certain way. And of course wants to pitch its story to its readers a certain way. So I can understand the, the reasoning behind all of that. But there's even, if you kind of keep going, there's more and more layers to the onion. Like, why is it that the Times has the resources to do this, but Haitian scholars have to struggle to tell this story and document it? Mm-hmm. If we take the Times at its word, it's like, well, nobody's really done all this archival work and put it together. It's a really beautifully done piece. The digital yes. archival work is amazing. It's going to be mm-hmm. really useful for teaching in classrooms. It's going to really shift the conversation in American journalism about Haiti. So the piece is really important. But it is also a reenactment 
of all the inequalities that go into producing history. Who gets to write whose history? Yes. Mm -hmm. Haitian historians often can't do that archival work because the archives about Haiti aren't in Haiti. Mm -hmm. They're in France. Yeah. Or some of them are in Florida. The, the, the Rochambeau papers um, from the end of the Haitian Revolution were sort of bought at auction by a library. Some of the work at the New York Times cites its work. Some of it's done in Belgium. So the Times spent money and, and definitely used a lot of people to produce it, which, which is great. But it shows the unequal conditions of historical production. That's uh, mm -hmm. a kind of cumbersome phrase, but you know what I mean? That yeah. Haitian historians can't tell their own story. They know it. It's been written. But it's also so even when they do tell it and struggle very hard to get it down in, in writing, it's not read by English speaking journalists or academics because it's in French. Or if they do read it, they don't cite it. And yeah. that's the big kind of pushback among the people I've been sort of listening to the past couple of days is there's a lot of Haitian scholars who were interviewed, whose work was read by the people yes. who wrote the series, and they're yeah. not properly cited in it. Now, yeah. some of that very academic journalism cites differently than academia. Yes. But again, it's hard not to see it as a pattern, right? It's, yeah. hard, it's hard not to see it as a pattern where going all the way back to the revolution where Haitians are, are treated as not able to understand their own lives, not able mm -hmm, to produce mm -hmm. their own narratives, not able to have done what they did, which is the revolution. And so the reason I think this is so that the Rolf's work is so timely for thinking about this right now is that in his book, Silencing the Past, History and the Production of Power, or, or Power in the Production of History, sorry, um, he talks about silences in historical production mm -hmm. and the way things get omitted, uh, left out of the story. You know, so Haiti has been silenced from the story of the West mm -hmm. ever since the West started talking about itself. But um, it's really important to know that that most of the wealth that went to producing, um, you know, a lot of things in France came from the colonies, in particular from the colony of Saint-Domingue, which for a time was the most, it's, something, it's often written as the wealthiest colony in the 1700s. But of course, it wasn't a wealthy colony. It was a wealth producing colony. But all the wealth went to France or other places, right? Mm -hmm. So it's silenced from that story or... Um, the revolution is silenced from our story about the making uh, of the birth of ideas of democracy and freedom, which is really a crucial part of the West's understanding of itself as a, as a place where that, that values freedom. Mm -hmm. you know, there's only, there's only one revolution in the modern era that actually got rid of slavery. And, right. Um, <laughs> and so if you're looking for a, a kind of the birth of an idea of freedom, you might want to look at, at that revolution. And mm -hmm, so in mm -hmm. that book, Science in the Past, beyond the sort of silences and the, and the, uh, the way archives are constructed or who owns, owns the archives or who has access to them, there's also, for me, a, a hugely important argument about what Rolf calls the unthinkability of the Haitian Revolution. Mm -hmm. And this has been um, really argued about by, by historians. This is why I think historians read, read the book more than anthropologists is because they, they partly are made uncomfortable by it. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of people pushed back when he wrote that saying, well, no, people were constantly worried about slave revolutions. Planters were terrified in the Caribbean constantly. If you read planters' diaries, they're always worried. They're always worried the slaves might be trying to poison them or kill them, mm -hmm. you know, with good reason. They should right. have been <laughs> because people were. <laughs> right. Because right. 
and they in some way they knew what they were doing was so reprehensible that people mm-hmm. would want to fight back that people wanted to right, be free. right so there's a weird contradiction right there but but that's not the level of the unthinkability that that even if we discovered some planter diary where someone's like oh you know what in saint domingue what if the slaves all burn the cane fields even that would still point to a kind of unthinkability it's not that that people weren't worried slaves didn't want to be slaves mm-hmm. they, they spent a lot on colonial armies to keep them enslaved right? mm-hmm. they imported new slaves all the time they fought maroon communities they made treaties with maroon communities there's a lot of thinking about all of that happening but the haitian revolution was unthinkable in a very important way and i think this is where the argument gets sort of underread again uh, to think about our conversation about the savage slot piece even in the sort of most progressive writing about the Haitian Revolution when it was happening, um, let's say people, you know, in, in France, in going through their own revolution, starting trying to think about, well, what are we going to do in the colonies? Are we going to put slavery back or not? What's going to happen? There's still this fundamental refusal to accept that the the slaves who were rising up in revolution had the political capacity to claim their own freedom. Mm-hmm. And that brings us back to the conceptual frameworks of the West, which is rooted in, in whiteness, rooted in a kind of a, a, a racist ontology that, that the people who can give freedom are Europeans. They can give it to their slaves through emancipation or, or ending slavery. That's certainly how the, the British saw themselves triumphantly in mm-hmm. their abolitionist move. And Eric Williams in, uh, you know, another person not cited in that Times article who's written a lot about the relationship between capitalism and slavery and, and, and the backstory that, that could help frame the, the ransom in Haiti. Eric Williams once quipped, I don't know the exact quote, but that, that the British, you would almost think that they would have invented slavery just so they could abolish it. You know, just so that they could feel triumphantly humanitarian in their mm-hmm, work mm-hmm. of abolishing it. And I think that that is kind of what Trio is getting at with the unthinkability, that even the, the sort of best sort of story from the West about the Haitian Revolution still wants to find a way that it can be connected back to, to France, mm-hmm. connected back to the Enlightenment. Um, and obviously, you know, people were reading Enlightenment tracts in the Caribbean and they were influenced by what's happening in France but there's also something that was happening in Haiti that mm-hmm. was happening there because of what was going on there and where those people were from and there was slaves in the revolutionary army who were uh, let's say born in the Caribbean and they had one kind of view uh, um, so Dessalines and, and the other kind of big leaders that that, that end up being in charge of the indigenous army come from that. And there's other slaves who are, who had just come from Africa and they wanted different things and there's different goals and there's different interests. And it was really vibrant political discussion happening and unfolding in real time from 1791 to 1804 and after about what freedom would look like after. Mm-hmm. And if, and I think that the unthinkability for him is that this just refusal to, to treat the slaves who revolted and then Haitians after 1804 as people capable of thinking and theorizing their own lives and having concepts that we would want to learn from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think that the times piece is so timely as it were, because it shows that on the one hand, we've come really far from when Rolf made that argument. There's way more published work about the hate, the Haitian revolution now 
than when he published that book in 1995, especially around the 2004 bicentennial. There was a lot of sort of public history stuff that came out. Mm-hmm. There's more archival work that's been done. We know more. There's more books out there. And I think Rolf would argue, and I would argue, it's still silenced, though. It's still unthinkable because, again, it remains possible for most people to think about the age of revolutions or to think about the creation of the West and not think about Haiti. And until that's fully done, until everybody knows about the Haitian Revolution as a matter of course, that that's, that's world history. You can't be, you can't go through school without knowing that. Until mm-hmm. that's true, we're not even close to getting to, to, to the, to pat, getting past that unthinkable blockage. I don't think anyone at the Times realizes what they did or didn't do, you know? Like, I think partly it's how journalism's done, maybe, but... yeah. But partly there's just still this inequality in there that, that, that like Haitian academics are there for white North American journalists to extract information from and that it's yeah. not, but it's still the journalists who did the work of breaking the story, right? They mm-hmm, see themselves mm-hmm. as doing the value added to the story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, when, you know, it, you can even go back to the very first big histories of Haiti from the 19th century um, and they have amazing work in them from very yes. scant archival sources that mm-hmm. they just didn't have access to. So the idea that this is an untold story, um, that, that people haven't been writing it for a very long time. Yeah. There's, there's, that's part of the, you know, Rolf's argument in silencing the past is that silencing doesn't happen always at the conscious level. It's, it's structural and, mm-hmm. and unconscious too. It's built into the kind of institutions or the genre narrative frames that we use. I think that, I think the people behind the times piece are really well-meaning, Yeah. but there's a kind of silencing that happens even as they write about Haiti. Mm-hmm. And that's the curious thing that's hard to get people, people either get it or they don't see that. And they, and it's, it's like when you try to explain to people that, that Haiti hasn't been forgiven for the revolution or that, that, that some of the things that, that keep Haiti down are just racism, you know? And I think that people want a certain kind of evidence for that, that it's hard yeah. to give because it's sort of everywhere and not, yeah. <laughs> and not, not one specific piece of evidence, but it's in everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know how, to, if you don't see it, I don't know how to make you see it or, you know, like, so hopefully this piece helps shift that conversation a bit. Yeah. And totally, I think yeah. that it, you know, whatever its flaws, the Times is a standard bearer for a lot of other journalism mm-hmm. in in English and America. And the fact that they did it in three languages, I think, is, is good. Yes, yes, um, That yes. must have been a hard sell because there's a lot of extra money and work to have that yeah. happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, but yeah, we could all do without them sort of... The, the, I, I laugh every time it comes across my, my social media feed, another link to the story because it always says, breaking news. And it's like, oh... <laughs> Breaking news, Haiti's been extorted for centuries, you know. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Negmawa Podcast. That's Mawa with a W, not an R.